0: Get in, loser. Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm again, And you're listening to Your Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist.
1: Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. Hello, hello. Hi. What is up? It's always weird whenever we do two episodes in a night because it feels like we have to do this whole like, how are you doing yeah. thing, even well, I though mean, we just an, did it.
2: An update from like two minutes ago, I peed. Cool. I broke my dog's heart thinking that I was done recording for the night and that I would come with her. Um, but that's all that's really new with me. We just recorded the mini episode discussing... Um, the results of the Breonna Taylor grand jury and the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg so it was a bit of a heavy uh, mini Yeah we're episode. in a great
1: place mentally is what yeah. you're saying. But Basically w- all of 2020 has been in this wonderful headspace. Right but I do have to say that moving on
2: to talking about women that inspire us our forgotten feminist faves is probably the best antidote for us to shift our perspective a bit Find some women that were inspiring in some way and hopefully uh, temporarily change
1: our mindset for a little bit. Totally. So this is Hispanic Heritage Month, which I looked up because I think it's so interesting that Hispanic Heritage Month, usually when you have a month like Black Black History Month or something like that, it's like the entire month of February or whatever. Women's History Month is like the entire month of March. But Hispanic Heritage Month is from September 15th to October 15th, mm-hmm. <laughs> so it kind of straddles two different months. Yeah. But because it is, we are in the midst of Hispanic Heritage Month, we wanted to focus on some wonderful ladies of Latinx or Hispanic descent for you yes. all today. So, I'm going to go first, and mine is not super forgotten, but I actually didn't know very much about her, and with the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I thought it would be a good time to talk about another woman who is currently on the Supreme Court, and that is Sonia Sotomayor. Oh! Oh! So, Sonia Sotomayor was born in New York City in the Bronx on June 25th, 1954, and her father, Juan, and her mother, Selena, were both born in Puerto Rico. And her parents, um, they moved from Puerto Rico separately, and they met after World War II or during World War II, and got married. And Selena was serving in the Women's Army Corps. So I actually think that her parents are kind of interesting. Like, she didn't have a great relationship with them. Her father passed away when she was young. Her father passed away when she was nine and um, was an alcoholic. And her mom, she said, was emotionally distant from her. But they grew up in the projects, like children of immigrants, very hardworking parents, because her father had a third grade education and didn't speak English. So he was a Wow. Yeah, he was a tool I mean, and dye lo- worker.
2: Yeah. Luckily, you know, my ex boyfriend lived in the Bronx and his grandmother and mother were immigrants from the Dominican Republic and his father was an immigrant from Puerto Rico. And it is it's interesting seeing that community, you know, in the twenty tens era because there are a lot of places that you can go where like his grandmother didn't speak any English at all. And she was still kind of able to survive. So at, at this point it seems like there's been a community created. But I would assume back in the nineteen fifties in New York that there probably wasn't much of like a Latinx community there. So if you Well there were- was there was, oh, there was. So okay. there good. was
1: a really thriving Puerto Rican community in, in the Bronx at this time. So they were very much like entrenched in that. And it did allow her father to, you know, get by not speaking English. Right. Cause that was something
2: that I was always very, I don't mean to get off topic, but that was something that I was always so surprised by that. Like, you know, this woman who really like could speak very, 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 very little English was able to live a very, very
1: full life in the Bronx. And get by without really having to know the language. Well, you know, if you have the right community around you, that can still happen. Like a good friend of mine who I know used to listen to the show. I don't know if she still does, but if she does. Hi, Denise. But she, um, you know, is Mexican-American and her mother speaks very little English to this day. And, you know, they live in Los Angeles. So I think it really does depend on like... What part of the city you're living in and who you're surrounding yourself with, right? You what know, com- what community you have? I mean, and I hopefully I think that must have been like,
2: I know that the Bronx is very heavily populated with Puerto Rican and Dominican immigrants and descendants, yeah, that is an area that seems to have been like, I don't know if it was known to the to that community or what, but, yeah, there does seem to be a very unique kind of like, very different cultural experience in those communities rather than like the other parts of New York that you see that are very much Americanized.
1: Totally. Yeah, well, I mean, New York City, we are off topic, but New York City (laughs) and and Los Angeles too, like it's interesting how there are like pockets of places where – certain people have settled, right? Like, there are certain right. neighborhoods in New York that are very much Italian neighborhoods. There are certain neighborhoods that are very much, like, Greek neighborhoods. Right, you feel like you've been transported almost to another, I don't want to say another country, because,
2: like, you know, you still know you're in the United States, but you're you're transported into another sort of, like, culture that you're not typically used to getting mm-hmm. into when you're within a city in the United States. You know what I mean? It's a very, to me, I think it's, it's such a fascinating sort of, like, um coping mechanism of like family and community that I think is really wonderful. Sure. Sorry,
1: didn't mean to take yeah, you off totally. topic too
2: much, but I I do love no, that you're kind fine. of
1: stuff. But I do find it interesting because her parents, for as many issues as she had with them, they were both extremely hard workers and they instilled that in their children. So even though he had this third grade education, couldn't speak English, he worked very hard for his family and her mother, uh, Selena, she worked as a telephone operator and then she worked as a practical nurse. So they grew up in a household, her and her younger brother, also named Juan, um, they grew up in a household where both parents were working And that was unusual in the 1950s and 60s. Oh, yeah. And her grandmother also lived at home and she became like very close to her grandmother. Her grandmother was kind of like her surrogate mother. Um, but they must have instilled something because they had one child who went on to become a Supreme Court justice and they had another, her younger brother, who grew up to become a physician and then later a university professor in Syracuse. So,
2: I mean, yeah, I think there's definitely something to say for kids of high achieving parents where there is a sort of expectation where if it's not ever explicitly put on them, that it is kind of implicitly put on them that they feel right. like they need to succeed in some ways in order to maybe even like have that connection with their parents because they were so successful, you know?
1: So her father died at the age of 42 when Sonia was nine, and it wasn't until after he passed away that she learned to speak English fluently. So she was born in New York, but because their community was so kind of like insulated and because she spoke Spanish at home because her father didn't speak English, she didn't learn to fluently speak English until nine, like almost 10 years old. Wow. She was really taken by Nancy Drew books at a young age, and so at first she wanted to become a detective. But she had type one diabetes, and she knew that like um, this might not be the career path that's going to work for you. So instead, she began watching TV and she started watching Perry Mason on TV um. and decided conclusively from like that moment on that she was going to go into law. Like she said, like that was it. At ten, I was like, I'm going to go into law, and, I, and she never looked back. It's funny so, how those things when you're young like imprint on you when you just see that one TV
2: show or read that one thing where you had no idea that you would be interested in it and that one thing comes up
1: and you're like okay yeah I'm gonna do that you know what made me want to go into law legally blonde that's right (laughs) I watched that and I was like, I want to be a lawyer. I can be fabulous. And Every be a kid in the early Oz wanted to be Elle Woods. And that's right. <laughs> so, even though Sonia and her mother weren't close, uh, she credits her mother, Lena with her success. Her mother put a lot of emphasis on education and bought her children an Encyclopedia Britannica, which was very unusual in their neighborhood. I mean, probably just unusual in general for your mom to be like, read this, <laughs> you know, an Encyclopedia Brit- Britannica. And also, those things weren't cheap. So I imagine that it was a bit of an investment for her. No, like for her people, children. People
2: made like a livelihood off of selling
1: encyclopedias. Yeah, like they're pretty you know, they're
2: expensive. They were expensive and they were very, very dense. Can you imagine being a kid and having your parents
1: giving you encyclopedias as a present? I would be like, no, return no, thank it. Thank you, please. Yeah. <laughs> as a child while attending elementary school, I put three exclamations in parentheses after that. Sonia worked at a retail store and a hospital. In what? elementary school, which I'm like, what? Who I mean, my dad you? was a caddy in
2: elementary school, which I even thought was a bit extreme for a child. But like, but imagine a
1: child like helping. You're like trying to get into the fitting room and there's like a little girl who's like, can I help you find anything else? Like I'd be like, oh, no, I don't think can so. I help
2: you find your mom. Yes. Where's like, your
1: parent? So she graduated grammar school, which is elementary school, at the top of her class. It actually said that she graduated as a, a valedictorian in grammar school, but I'm like, I don't think they have those. Okay, in but you elementary know, school.
2: but you know, kids that like knew that they were like the top graded kid in their class and would carry that with them forever. Even if they even did great in other things in their lives, they were like, But I'm the smartest. But I was
1: always the smartest, even when I was little, you know. Well, she really was the smartest because she ended up passing her entrance exam uh, to Cardinal Spellman High School, which I guess you have to test into in the Bronx. And she attended Cardinal Spellman and was on the forensics team and was elected to student government. And then she graduated As valedictorian in 1972. So she's an overachiever. of course she
2: did. Would you expect anything less from Sonia? You know Sonia.
1: Right. She is an overachiever. So meanwhile, uh, the projects that Sonia lived in, because she lived in, you know, like a housing project, it had become a hotspot for heroin use, crime, and gang activity. So the family moved from these projects into public housing at this point. After high school, she earned a full-ride scholarship to Princeton, And um, Princeton at the time had very, very few women in attendance and even fewer Latinx or Hispanic people. There were only about 20 Latinx or or people of Hispanic descent in the entire school at the time. So having not learned English fluently until nearly the age of 10, her reading and writing skills were not up to par with her classmates, (laughs) who I'm sure had been prepped to go to Princeton for like their entire lives. Yeah, yeah. So she, but you know, she was prideful. I'd be the same way. She didn't want to ask for help. So she worked super hard. She would oftentimes spend long hours in the library over summers to study and sought out her professors in their off time and her off time for one-on-one time to shore up her knowledge in reading and writing. That is self-motivation I wish I had. Me too. She became a student activist and she was the co-chair of the Accion Puerto Ricania organization, which served as a local and political hub and sought more opportunities for Puerto Rican students. As an activist, she focused on faculty hiring and curriculum because Princeton did not have a single full-time Latino professor nor any classes on Latin American studies at her time there. So. She met with the university president, William G. Boehm, in her sophomore year and saw no results. Like he was like, "Mm, thank you, but no thank you. I know what I'm doing, little girl. So she went to um, the New York Times and basically said that Quote, Princeton is following a policy of benign neutrality and is not making substantive efforts to change. So Action Puerto filed a formal letter of complaint in 1974 with the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare and uh, saying that the school discriminated in its hiring and admission practices. And she wrote an opinion piece for the Daily Princetonian at the same of the same theme. So she just basically was like, I'm going to be relentless until I get what I want. Right. You can exactly. Kind of see- well,
2: and she's very smart because she knows that, you know, okay, I went through the channel of trying to speak with the president, going that way, you know, of the of the university. Well, that didn't work. The media is the best way to go about it. You right. know, you find the biggest and best news source that will take your story. And talk about it because that is the best way to put pressure on any situation. Yeah, and
1: make a nuisance of yourself. Like yeah. be so loud they can't ignore you. Exactly. I think it's something that she learned pretty early on. Right. So the, the university after that did begin to hire Latino faculty. And Sotomayor uh, established like an actually decent relationship with Bowen after that. And they, they had kind of a little bit more of a working relationship. It's, it's almost like, not that I want to call him a bully, but it's almost like a bully where like you have to stand up to them and then they admire your strength right <laughs> you know
2: or you so, like or you have like for for me like when i got suspended with that kid for like quote unquote fighting there was that day where that we were just kind of like stuck in the principal's office together and like saw the sides of humanity
1: in each other and we're like okay we can be cool now you know what oh, i mean yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> So she also ran an after school program for local children and volunteered as an interpreter for Latino patients at the Trenton Psychiatric Hospital, which I think is just like such a wonderful, like what an incredible way to give back at the psychiatric hospital. What a thing that I'd never even thought about, like to
2: help somebody who, because that's so important. Like when there's a physical ailment, you can see it. There's x-rays. When there's a mental ailment, like, it all comes from you expressing how you're feeling. So the fact that she was able to acknowledge that that's a
1: specific group of people that she's able to help, that's really cool. I don't know if I ever thought of that. Totally. So she wrote her senior thesis at Princeton at Princeton on Luis Munoz Marín. Uh, I probably butchered that. But he was the first democratically elected governor of Puerto Rico and on the territory's struggles for economic and political self-determination. And it won honorable mention for the Latin American Studies thesis prize. So I bring all this stuff up because I have a lot of pages of notes. I'm trying to get through them quickly. But like I bring all this stuff up because I really want to highlight that her being a um, Puerto Rican woman was a huge part of her identity and something that she really sought to highlight rather than to hide. Where I feel like very often people, if they can assimilate, try to assimilate, because right. there's this unspoken thing that the whiter you are, the more successful you will be. And she really highlighted her differences, which I think takes a certain amount of courage, really. I think it takes a lot of courage, because especially if you have a lot of aspirations to fit in with that
2: group of people that you know is not going to necessarily be receptive to you, it does take a lot of courage to actively like be authentic Sounds terrifying,
1: yeah. You know, in in
2: a group that you would probably want to appear your best at all the time.
1: You know, right? And you know that they're judging you. They're judging you for not for being different, for not being like them. Right? You know. So, but you know, with all that, she graduated summa cum laude with an AB in history, and then she entered Yale Law School in 1976 once more on a scholarship. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, she became the editor of the Yale Law Journal and was also the managing editor of the student-run Yale Studies in World Public Order publication, which is now known as the Yale Journal of International Law. She uh, published a law review note on the effect of possible Puerto Rican statehood in the islands, mineral, and ocean rights, and she was co-chair of a group for Latin, Asian, and Native American students and her advocacy to hire more... Hispanic faculty was renewed at Yale. She was like, we did this at Princeton. Now we're we're going to do do it here. here. We need more representation, basically. In her third year, she was working um, or she was trying to work for this firm like as an associate. And she filed a formal complaint against this Washington, D.C. law firm, Shaw, Pittman, Potts and Trowbridge uh, for suggesting during a recruit- recruitment dinner she was at dinner with them and they suggested to her that she only got into Yale through affirmative action. Mm-hmm. So she was like n- n- not today. Yep. And uh, later on in her life she did say that like she does think that affirmative action played a role in her getting into Princeton because You know, she didn't have the same kind of language skills because she was at a disadvantage because of how she grew up. But it actually made her an advocate for affirmative action and like the benefits of it.
2: Yeah, that's the thing is like you can't uh, you can't say it's like it's a bad thing. Like it's just a bad thing. Like it's there to it seems like to give that gave her an opportunity to then...
1: When she graduated summa cum laude, so it's not like she didn't hold her own. It's not like she didn't prove herself at Princeton. Well, right, with all of her her like classmates who had far more advantages than she did, and she still managed to come out on top.
2: Right. There just needs to be like there needs to be. I feel like those things in place, especially at one point, in order to have there be less discrimination on like students that are going into schools. For sure,
1: for sure. I mean, and that was Princeton. That wasn't Yale. So. Once they suggested this during a recruitment dinner, she refused to be interviewed by them further and filed a complaint with the Faculty Student Tribunal, which ruled in her favor. The firm did eventually apologize, and that apology was published in The Washington Post. Damn. Damn. After graduating from Yale, she was admitted into the New York Bar Association and she was hired right out of law school as an assistant district attorney under the New York Council District Attorney uh, Robert Montethau starting in 1979. She worked she worked super hard. So I, I edited out the fact that she did get married during this time because she didn't get divorced around this time. Part In part because she worked so hard. She was working right. 15 hour days and she gained a reputation for being driven and for her preparedness. And she had, a, you know, this was the time in New York City where it was like crime was at an all time fucking high. Yeah. So she was working very, very hard as like an assistant DA. But she had a real zeal for prosecuting people child pornography cases which was unusual at the time like we didn't really as a society come to terms with like child abuse, sexual abuse and things like that. Well I mean just child abuse in general I feel like today
2: is still something that for a lot of people is really hard to talk about.
1: Yeah for sure Uh, So in 1984, she went into private practice and became a partner in 1988. But then she left the firm in 1992 when she became a judge. Now, pause on her becoming a judge because I want to talk about, in addition to her work at the law firm, she also continued her public service work. So in 1987, the governor of New York, Mario Cuomo, Sound familiar? She sure does. Uh, appointed Sotomayor to the board of the State of New York Mortgage Agency, which she served on until 1992. And as it was part of one of the largest urban rebuilding efforts in American history, the agency helped low-income people get home mortgages and provide insurance coverage for housing and hospice, and hospice for sufferers of AIDS. So she was continuing... <laughs> this. And she also continued her work within her community. She was a member on the board of directors for the Puerto Rican Legal Defense and Education Fund from 1980 to 1992. And she was also a top policymaker who worked actively in organizations on issues such as New York City's hiring practices, police brutality, and death penalty and voting rights. So she was kind of on the front end of all of this, and she really had a focus on the power of minority voters. She was able to speak to these people because she grew up with these people. She grew up in the Bronx. She, you know, had a familiarity with minorities. Her goal from the time that she was about like 10 years old had always been to become a judge. So in 1991, she was recommended for a spot by Democratic New York Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan. And Moynihan had made a public promise earlier that year that he would appoint a Hispanic judge. So a lot of people were like, this is just like, you're pandering, you're appointing this person. But in reality, it was his staff who recommended her to him. They were like, we've got the judge for you. (laughs) So he identified with her socioeconomic and academic background and became convinced that she would become the first Hispanic Supreme Court justice. Love it. He was like, I'm calling it right now. So she was nominated uh, November 27th, 1991 by George H.W. Bush to sit on the U.S. District Court of Southern District of New York. However, she was blocked by a Republican senator in retaliation for an unrelated block that Democrats had put on another nominee. Mm. (laughs) So... Democrats had the majority and I guess the Republicans introduced someone, some nominee and the Democrats were like, no. So out of spite, it seems like this Republican nominee was like, well, I'm not going to take your pick either. Right. So it, he, she had to wait basically a year, almost a year, to August 11th, 1992 before he relented and she was able to be confirmed. And at that point with unanimous consent. Yay! Yay! So she became the youngest judge in the Southern District and the first Hispanic federal judge in New York State. She became the first Puerto Rican woman to serve as a judge in the U.S. federal court. And she's one of only seven women among the district's 58 judges. And at this point, she moved back to the Bronx to live in her district. (laughs) She was like, I'm going to go back there and live... With my people. Oh, I know. I I've was been gonna say to- you're
2: talking like into the side of your microphone.
1: <laughs> Sorry, if the sound was weird, it's because I was lazy and let my wrist slip. You were I was talking in the wrong side of my microphone. Twisting your wrist, girl. Yeah. So on June 25th, 1997, she was nominated by Bill Clinton to seat on the U.S. Court of Appeals, uh, Second Circuit Court. And it became testy when some of the Republican majority believed that, again, you know, all through her life, she's had this thing following her where they're like, we are only where you are because you're Hispanic and a woman. Which is like...
2: I'm here in spite of those things, motherfuckers. Exactly. Exactly. But
1: a lot of the Republican people were like, you're only you only want to nominate her because you want to have the first Hispanic Supreme Court justice. Um, But regardless, it was an easy confirmation, although a, a lot of the Republican majority, you know, slowed her confirmation and Rush Limbaugh at the time actually weighed in that that she was an ultra liberal who was on a rocket ship to the highest court. They were like, oh, no, uh, so familiar with all of this, like liberal fear mongering that's going on for sure. It's never stopped. And she's not an ultra liberal. Like, if for instance, again, we talked about this in the mini episode where it's like as much as you can admire someone, especially when it comes to judges you're not going to agree with every decision that they have they make. Right. And, you know, Sonia Sotomayor was a, is a Catholic woman, you know, and so she has personal worldviews that affect the way that she, even though she's, you know, tries to be unbiased. And I think from what I've read is largely successful there. Right. She still has rulings that I would not consider to be ultra liberal. For instance, in 2002, In the 2002 decision, Center for Reproductive Law and Policy v. Bush, Sotomayor upheld the Bush administration's implementation of the Mexico City policy, which states that "quote the United States will no longer contribute to separate non-governmental organizations which perform or actively promote abortion." As a method of family planning in other nations, mm-hmm. so she held that the policy did not constitute a violation of equal protection, as quote the government is free to favor the anti-abortion position over the pro-choice position and can do so with such funds. So, I I, I don't love that. Right. <laughs> it's not my favorite. Yeah. And it's things like that that make me think like she's not an. Like, you know, she's not like a super, super far left person. Right, I don't right. think. Well, she's she's like kind of what our typical I feel
2: like Democrat, moderate Democrat. Absolutely. Would, has I would put her been. in a moderate
1: category. Yes. Right. And put I put mean, her in a very moderate category. Kind of the
2: Democrats we know and love growing up, you know?
1: <laughs> but she did have a ruling. She had a lot of rulings. I didn't put them all in here. But she had a ruling that I agreed with. And that was when she dissented from her colleagues in a decision to uphold a series of strip searches of troubled adolescent girls <gasps> in juvenile detention centers. No, she dissented like other people were like, we think this is fine. No. And she was like, nay, nay. So, um, she agreed that some of the strip searches at the issue, uh, in the case were lawful. She, would have held that due to, quote, the severely intrusive nature of strip searches, they should not be allowed, quote, in the absence of individualized suspicion of adolescents who have never been charged with a crime. So basically, they were just like, um, these troubled adolescent girls, we don't know what they're up to. We have the right to strip search them without any cause. Right.
2: Well, (laughs) and, you know, The types of people that go into law enforcement are not always the most savory people, especially when it comes to the people that choose to work in the prison system. So, if you're allowing these people to just kind of give strip searches for no reason, you are asking for like a ground of pedophiles. Really, like it's Mm -hmm. just it's disgusting.
1: You're you're welcoming those people in. Totally. Uh, So, following Barack Obama's 2008 presidential election. There was speculation immediately that Sotomayor would be the leading candidate for the Supreme Court seat. And there were New York Senators Chuck Schumer and K- Kristen Gillibrand. They wrote a joint letter to Obama urging him to appoint Sotomayor to the Supreme Court should a vacancy arise. So they contacted her on April 27th, 2009, with the possibility of a nomination. And then later, like three days later, Justice David Souter's retirement plans leaked to the media and so she received early attention. They were like, it's coming. We know he's retiring. It's going to be here for you. Right. So on May 25th, he uh, Obama informed Sotomayor of his choice. She later said, "Quote, I had my hand over my chest trying to calm my beating heart literally." <laughs> she Aww. was like this is the thing that she's been working towards her whole life. Yeah. Uh so the next day, Obama nominated her, and she became only the second jurist to be nominated to three different judicial positions by three different presidents. Wow. That's true. Yeah. So George H.W.,
0: Bill Clinton, and
1: now Obama. Damn. Of course, the strongest criticism of her nomination came from conservatives and some Republican senator- senators because she had said uh, in a speech in 2001 at a Berkeley Law lecture, she said, quote, I would hope that a wise Latina woman with the richness of her experiences would more often than not reach a better conclusion than a white male who hasn't lived that life, mm-hmm. and the white men lost their minds. Well, she
2: was they right. They lost their shit because they
1: don't like it when the when the truth is spoken. Yeah, I mean Rush Limbaugh and Newt Green- Gingrich called Sotomayor racist. Over her remarks, racist against white men, Uh, it's really an epidemic. We really need to be easier on the white men. um, V worried about them. They're very
2: sensitive.
1: Yes, uh, they are. They really are so
2: sensitive, and we're snowflakes, whatever.
1: But Newt Gingrich did later like backtrack from calling her a racist. He like softened it later on, but. On July 28th, 2009, the Senate Judiciary Committee voted 13 to 6 in favor of her nomination, sending it to the full Senate for a final confirmation vote. Every Democrat voted in favor, as did one Republican, Lindsey Graham. Oh, weird. Like, that feels strange to me knowing who Lindsey Graham is now. Thanks. Yeah. On August 6, 2009, she was confirmed uh, and she was sworn in on August 8th, and she is the first Hispanic to serve on the Supreme Court. She also administered the oath to Vice President Joe Biden for his inauguration for the second term, and she became the first Hispanic and fourth woman to administer the oath to a president or vice president. By the end of her fifth year on the court, she had become especially visible in oral arguments and in passionate dissents from various majority rulings, especially those involving issues of race, gender, and ethnic identity. In her reading of the constitutionality of the Obama healthcare law favoring the poor and disabled, she sided with Ruth Bader Ginsburg against fellow liberals Breyer and Kagan. In dealing with the chief justice, she responded to his statement that, quote, the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discrimination on the basis of race. Basically, that's like a very colorblind statement. Right. And she responded to that by saying, I don't borrow Chief Justice Roberts' description of what colorblindness is. Our society is too complex to use that kind of analysis. Mm -hmm. And during her tenure on the court, she has also become recognizable as being among the court's strongest voices in supporting the rights of the accused. She has been identified as the foremost voice on the court calling for reforming criminal justice education In particular, as it relates to misconduct by police and prosecutors, abuses in prisons, and concerns about how the death penalty is used. So she's really, like, a very strong advocate for prisoners' rights and just basically underprivileged people. I'm like, this is why it's so important to have people who have different kinds of life experiences serving on these courts. Yeah. Because she is able to bring her own life experience to the table in the in a way that like a rich white guy right. whose parents sent him to Harvard, you know, who was always groomed for that kind of life. Right. Is not going to be able to. Like she she brought that she had an understanding of like she knew people like this from her neighborhood. Of course. She knows she she was very um vocal about talking about how she believes that most people who are in jail for petty crimes are there because of circumstances. Right. You know, like, like she, though she was very tough on criminals. Right. She hadn't,
2: but she had an understanding of, you know, kind of the understanding behind a lot of criminal behavior. And I think that's something that a lot of um, the criminal just, the criminal justice system does not understand is that, you know, there are circumstances that lead people to live uh, certain lives and make certain choices and things like that. So the fact that there is somebody with a different sense of um, humility and a different background who is able to see things from maybe a different perspective is so important. And that's why, like, really, you know, the, the goal of this country from the beginning, I feel, you know, they said for the people, by the people, we should be seeing ourselves reflected in our government. So the more and more that happens, the more that we are actually going to be represented. And that's why it's
1: so important that we have Right, that's incredible. You know, variety of people. It's incredibly important that we had a non white woman sitting on the Supreme Court to tell this old white man that your ideas about colorblindness are incorrect and here's why. Right. And, you know, it's
2: important. And without that, that that wouldn't have happened at that time. You know what I mean? We we need those people to actually be in there and stand up for themselves and people like Sonia who are not going to take any of your bullshit.
1: Yeah. And so, I mean, I do want to say that, like, she got a lot of awards. She did a, a lot of there was a lot of rulings. They're not all going to be good. I'm sure there are going to be people in our comments who are like, well, what about this thing she did? What about that thing totally. she did? I'm they're, they're not all good. Right. However, she was still a trailblazer, is yeah. still a trailblazer. She did, you know, history was made when she joined the Supreme Court. And I think that that is something worth recognizing and talking about, especially during Hispanic Heritage Month. Yes. So,
2: Exactly.
1: Well, the woman I'm talking about
2: is nowhere nearer close to Sonia. <laughs> um, oh dear. <laughs> All right, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. So I am going to be telling you
1: today about Anna Mendieta. Um, okay, I don't know who this person is. Are you ready? I'm ready. All
2: right, I'm going to start you off with a bang. Are you ready? I'm actually going to work backwards. I'm going to tell you guys. I don't know.
1: I'm a, a little worried. You've asked me if I'm ready like three times. <laughs> now, I'm, now I don't know. I didn't
2: realize I did that. Um, <laughs> I'm going to actually start at the end and then go back to the beginning and work our way back to it because... your macro, Your
1: microphone's backwards.
2: Shut up.
1: <laughs> okay,
2: so I'm actually going to start at the end of the story and work my way back to the beginning and then meet back at the end. So, on September 8th, 1985, in Greenwich Village, New York City, a woman fell 33 stories onto a deli roof and died. Was she pushed?
1: Mystery. Mystery. I feel like Unsolved Mystery theme song should be playing right now. I know, right?
2: Like, I should have some really slow music playing underneath what I'm, like, telling. Well, I've got to say, this threw me for a loop, because when I first read about this woman, her death was not mentioned. And so I'm like reading her Wikipedia page and like going through it and super inspired by this woman and then that happened. So I was like, I have to start with that because I was taken for a loop. When I got to that point of her story. Yeah. So let's go back to Havana, Cuba in 1948 when Ana Mendieta was born to an attorney father and a chemist slash researcher as a mother, which I was like,
1: okay, woman in STEM. I know
2: 1948 woman in STEM in Havana, Cuba seems uh, very, very progressive to me. So two years after the Cuban authoritarian government was overthrown by Fidel Castro, so this is 1961, Ana was sent to the United States along with 14,000 other Cuban children as part of the Operation Pedro Pan. So do you know anything about, like, the mass, like, migration of Cuban children? No, I don't. So during this time, parents started to kind of hear these rumors and started to get a little bit apprehensive over Fidel Castro possibly taking away parental rights of the parents and placing children into communist indoctrination centers. Um, So, and this was kind of like, these rumors were starting to kind of be... um, taken more as fact when schools started being shut down, especially like Catholic schools and private schools were being shut down. So parents in Cuba were very, very scared that their children would be taken away from them. So this plan was arranged to get you know, obviously this very, very, very large amount of children out of the country within this like two year span between 1960 and 1962. So between those two years, 14,000 children left. And it was not obviously great circumstances. Um, So Anna was 12 years old and she was able to travel with her sister, Raquelin, who was 15. And they were lucky enough to actually stay together because their parents signed a power of attorney. So she did come from like a prominent middle class family. I guess in her family there were a lot of like prominent politicians and stuff. So she did... Um you know,
1: seem like some leverage, some power,
2: possibly some leverage in order to stay with her sister. Because I did read a lot of articles of experiences of other children who went through this where they did not have that same experience. And so they were lucky enough to at least have each other. But that was kind of where their luck ends. So for the first few weeks that they are in the United States, they flew into Miami and they were stuck in refugee camps for two years. For two years. Sorry. Whoa. No, 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 not for two years. Sorry. Two weeks. Oh, my God. (sighs) I was like, Jesus, that's so long. Okay, my (laughs) next note was two years. (laughs) So... Anna's next two years in the United States consisted of constantly shuffling between foster homes and orphanages, and she lived in the town of Dubuque, Iowa, which I am somewhat familiar with Dubuque, Iowa, because I'm a Minnesotan. Do you know anything about Iowa? Probably not. Literally nothing but corn. So this right? is actually pretty big much on corn. It's a lot of corn. Yeah. So this is actually Iowa's oldest city, and it's among one of the oldest settlements west of the Mississippi. Yes, I went on Dubuque, Iowa's Wikipedia page to get this information. So another thing I learned on Dubuque, Iowa's uh, Wikipedia page was that there was a lot of Irish and German immigrants. So us being from the Midwest, we kind of probably have an idea of what Iowa is. I have a lot of experience with Iowans, Iowans in my life. Iowans, Iowans. yeah, I think. And it is a very, very farm-like State, I mean, even the larger cities are
1: really not large cities, it's a very different, um, right? Yeah, I don't mean this as an insult in any way, but Iowa is one of those states that I feel like people kind of forget about, yeah, like it's just one of those places that I, I don't feel like. I hated driving lot of people, through it. yeah, oh gosh, I mean, it's so again, boring. not to offend anyone, but when I drove through Kansas, I felt the same, yeah. way. It, and it's not it's not an insult. It's just like one of those things where it, there's nothing in Iowa specifically that I would be like, I'm going to travel to Iowa right. for this. Yeah, you know? exactly. So she... I'm sure it's beautiful. I mean, yeah, everybody everybody's
2: hometown has something about it that's like wonderful. You know what I mean? I've heard that um, Des Moines is like awesome, you know, and there's a lot of college towns and things like that, too, which is wonderful. So she stayed in Iowa and she was kind of shuffled around to different foster homes and orphanages and group homes and things like that that. So the first two years in the the United States were really um, not a secure time for her. And she was 12 years old when she came to the United States. So that's really like a time in everybody's lives where they're kind of coming into their own. And she was kind of had this forced independence where I feel like this time really had a lasting impact on her life. So luckily, after those two years, the girls were reunited with their mother and their younger brother in 1966. Um, her father was unable to join them until 1979 because he spent 18 years as a political prisoner in Cuba for his involvement Oy. in the Bay of Pigs invasion. Yikes. So that was a lot was a lot of years of, of worry, um, but he did make it out and he got to the United States. So Anna attended an all-girls Catholic school as a young girl in Cuba. And then in Iowa, they were enrolled in a reform school. So this is very strange. Apparently, it seems like because they were immigrants... They either had to go to a reform school or they had to go to a state institution, which is like a mental hospital. So that part was very confusing to me. And I don't have more information on that. But OK,
1: because okay. I'm like, what is a reform school entail? Like, what does that well, mean? Well, I think a
2: reform school, a reform school is where like bad kids go to learn to behave better. Interesting. Yeah. OK, so. That's problematic. It's very problematic. <laughs> it's like, and so I didn't look further into that, but there was something that I that I looked into. And so I wrote in really big letters, like, so the choices were psych ward or reform school? Like, it just doesn't make any sense to me. But that was... I mean, was- yeah, what
1: does that say about people seeking asylum? Like, what does that say about yeah immigrants like it's such a weird thing to do And these children that were coming in such like mass quantities like i didn't say this but there was
2: two direct flights out of pan am from havana to miami like every single day just to get tons and tons and tons of kids out of there that really needed protection and help and instead were just tossed around like they really didn't mean anything um so after that or, sorry, it was during kind of this time when she was in junior high school that she discovered her love for art in college. She was first a French major and art minor. But when she transferred to the University of Iowa, she chose art over French as her major. She earned a BA and an MA in painting and an MFA in intermedia, which is kind of like mixing multiple mediums of art to create kind of like a performance art piece. Cool. In college, her art focused on blood and violence toward women. So this Ooh. is kind of where we start getting into Anna's like feminist causes. Her life in Cuba and immigrating over to the United States and a lot of the violence that she witnessed and experienced Um, was a, is a really, really big part of her identity. And also specifically, she grew a big interest in, um, like spiritual teachings and religion and primitive rituals, even during this time as a way to kind of, uh, help her body feel more connected to the earth and more connected to where she's from. She just always felt very displaced. So after she graduated from, uh, the university of Iowa, she moved to New York, So in New York, her art focused heavily on being displaced from her family as a child, and the themes that she covered mostly in her art were feminism, violence, life and death, and place and belonging. Her works are often associated also with the four elements of nature, as she, like I said, tried to connect this like, physical and spiritual being to the earth. So she would go out into nature and use the things that you would find, you know, mud, Wigs, different things like that, and used that as her materials for her art. So this is what she says about her artwork. Through my earth body sculptures, I become one with earth. I become an extension of nature, and the nature becomes an extension of my body. This obsessive act of reasserting my ties with the earth is really the reactivation of primeval beliefs. An omnipresent female force, the after image of being encompassing within the womb, is a manifestation of my thirst for being." So she produced over 200 works of art using earth as a sculptural medium. And her techniques were inspired by Afro-Cuban traditions. In 1978, Anna joined the membership of Artists in Residence, or AIR, uh, the AIR Gallery in New York, which was the first gallery for women in the United States. And so this was a group of female artists around her that were like kind of at the forefront of like that wave of feminism, kind of the... Second wave of feminism in New York in the art community. So she was like a part of this group of women that was really making a big difference. 2 years later she unfortunately left AIR saying quote American feminism as it stands is basically a white middle class movement shocking shocking I mean there was some controversy over her leave during this time she had met who would be her future husband by the name of Carl Andre and a lot of people say that he was probably also a really big influence as to why she left so she first met Carl Andre where he served Served on a panel titled how has women's art practices affect male artists social attitudes which hmm. yeah I was like girl why did you think that was a good thing I wouldn't say to go I mean talk to I that guess guy. I would
1: need to know more about like what he means right like my knee-jerk reaction is like it's not about you why are you making this about you but maybe he meant it in I don't know, like, maybe he meant it not... I don't want to say positive. Positive sounds like the wrong word, but, like, maybe he meant it in that... How are they influencing it? Yeah, uh, in no, a positive he, way?
2: He's a real piece of shit, which makes me feel oh. like probably well, not, but there must have never been something then. in that to make her... Because she was a very headstrong woman, and, like obviously had really strong beliefs in feminism and intersectionality as well. But you know what? I've known lots
1: of very smart, capable... Exactly. ...strong women who end up in relationships with abusive assholes. Right.
2: Well, and it's interesting that she states her reason for leaving as, you know, feminism being a white middle class, you know, group, which is true, especially during that time. It definitely was. So everything she's saying is 100% true. But I also wonder if there was, like... Some pressure from him in a way to to see those things to say those things because to to me it seemed like it was a group of women that were finally understanding like what she was about and he kind of took her away from that. That's my well, perception yeah. It's, of the it's story. possible
1: that he, you know it's possible that she had those feelings already yeah. and then he came in and pushed. Pushed her, you know, right? That's possible.
2: So, some of her most famous pieces of work were called Silhouette, her Silhouette series, which she worked on between 1973 and 1980. So, this is where she would kind of like create this silhouette of her body, like kind of an indentation into the earth or like some sort of sculpture in the earth of her silhouette. And it would be made with like mud, sand, grass. She would use leaves and twigs and even blood. Um, And she would make these like body prints sometimes into the ground or into walls um, to kind of display kind of the different like very violent acts of domestic violence in a very natural setting. So this is what she says about that. I have been carrying out dialogue between the landscape and the female body based on my own silhouette. I believe this has been a direct result of my having been torn from my homeland during my adolescence. I am overwhelmed by the feeling of being cast from the womb, or nature. My art is a way I reestablish the bonds that unite me to the universe. It is a return to the maternal source. She often used the naked body as well to explore and connect with the earth, which is like... She would get naked and lay <laughs> in the earth, which to me, I'm like, oh,
1: that sounds dangerous. To me, I'm a little concerned about, like, ticks, yeah, bugs I, crawling into places.
2: I can't even sleep without underwear on. Like, I'll sleep with nothing on but my underwear, but there has to be underwear on because I don't want anything going near my vagina. I yeah I don't love it yeah right you know personally what I mean? like just don't want the thoughts of like bugs getting near my vagina at all so like I said she did use a lot of blood in her work and the first time she used blood was in 1972 when she performed a piece called Untitled Death of a Chicken and I am going to give a trigger warning to all the vegans listening right now for just oh, a few dear. seconds like just hit fast forward like 40 seconds. So in this, she would stand naked and she held a freshly decapitated chicken at her. (laughs) Sorry. She held a freshly decapitated (laughs) chicken by its feet
1: as blood splattered all over her naked body. Uh, I mean, look, 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 I'm not an art critic. Right. It's not my favorite. Yeah. Personally, it's not for me. Yeah. But. But, okay. I mean it's a.
2: It's, she's making a point you know. It, you're making a statement you sure are. This next one was like very moving to me so she was absolutely appalled by the brutal rape and murder of Sarah Ann Ottens in 1973 who was a nursing student at her alma mater of the University of Iowa. So to kind of deal with these feelings of anger Anna smeared herself with blood and tied herself to a table inviting an audience to watch and this was called untitled rape scene. So So she would use her body to emphasize the societal conditions by which the female body is objectified by male desire and can be destroyed due to the masculine aggression. So it was kind of this very blatant way of showing like this is what male aggression does to us and it was a way for the audience not really able to look away and actually this piece really helped Sarah Ann Otten's case gain a lot of attention. It helped her gain an identity and it forced the audience to reflect and become aware of the atrocities of sexual violence this was in 1973 oh wow yeah so this was not a time where people were discussing this kind of thing at all and she was doing something that even by today's standards would be completely shocking in response to such a horrible death but that's what she did best she was really good at shocking people but also creating really really beautiful pieces of art and very moving pieces of art as well so, before her death, Anna was working on a series of photo etchings of cave sculptures she had created in Juarco State Park in Havana, Cuba, entitled Rupestrian Sculptures. Um, so, that refers to living among rocks, and she was also influenced by the Taino people, who are the native inha- inhabitants of pre-Hispanic Antilles. She completed five photographs before passing away in 1985, and her book the uh, Anna Mendieta book of works was published in 1993 she also did a couple of uh, film pieces one of them that I thought sounds really cool was called Creek where she portrayed Ophelia from Hamlet and it's where she kind of emerges underwater as Ophelia which I've always really loved Hamlet and Ophelia's character so that was really cool yeah Um, And there's actually going to be more things released from her fairly soon. As in 2016, there was a documentary started by her niece named Raquel Cecilia Mendieta. And as of 2019, that documentary is in post-production. So a lot of these uncovered films that had never been seen before were opened up by her niece for this documentary in particular. Wow, that's amazing. Very cool. So... Let's go back to the very beginning of this, uh, my part of this story. So, like I said, on September 8th, 1985, in New York City, Anna fell from her 34th floor apartment in Greenwich Village, where she lived with her husband of eight months, who may okay. or may not have pushed her out I mean, window. I... Uh-
1: Yeah, I guess... Do you want to hear the evidence? Yes, please.
2: (laughs) Okay, so she fell, like I said, she fell 33 stories and actually landed on the roof of a deli. And there was a man, there was a doorman working nearby that heard a woman screaming, no, 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 before hearing somebody crash Mm to the ground. Like, absolutely just... Heartbreaking, but unfortunately, so, there were guess, no guy, eyewitnesses. Mm-hmm, yeah, so, so he got off. He makes a 911 call, and this is what he says My wife is an artist, and I'm an artist. And we had a quarrel about the fact that I was more
1: uh exposed to the public than she was. And she, that's what you're gonna say in your fucking 911 call, you piece of shit. Oh my god. And she went to the
2: bedroom, and I went after her, and she went out the window. That was his nine one one call. So apparently, she was too proud to think that her husband would be more successful than her. So she
1: jumped out. What the window. a weird thing to bring up in a nine one. Even if even if that's what happened, it's strange to bring that up in a nine one one call. Yeah, like well, he was trying like to in cover that moment. His tracks right exactly, because a normal person in that moment, like if your wife has just jumped out of a window, you're in shock. You're calling. Yeah. I understand everyone responds differently, but that is so. Weird. It's a very, and it's a very,
2: like, you see, we're both artists. And, you know, it's just this very weird way of saying it. So he was charged with manslaughter. Uh, the legal proceedings lasted for three years with Carl Andre's lawyer describing Anna's death as an accident or suicide the entire time. And unfortunately, the judge found him not guilty of on the grounds of reasonable doubt. So... There was some things that were said during the trial that I feel like showed self-defense. There were like new scratch wounds on his nose and on his arms, I believe, that would show that she may have been trying to fight back. Also, with the doorman hearing, you know, a woman saying no, but unfortunately at that time, and especially with someone falling out a window, there can't really be, I guess, that much evidence there to prove if she'd been pushed I guess maybe the trajectory of how she went down but like that just seems
1: really difficult to determine so I mean it would be hard to prove but yeah yeah. I suppose it would be hard to prove with forensic evidence but I'm like you have not an eyewitness but you do have a witness there who can say like I heard her yelling yeah exactly so feminists of the world were enraged with this.
2: Everybody felt, especially, you know, the Hispanic community and particularly particularly the Cuban community, uh, truly had a love for Ana. And a symposium titled Where is Ana Mendieta was held in NYU in 2010 to commemorate the 25th anniversary of her death. And one thing that I love is although Carl Andre got off and he never had to spend any time in prison, This feminist protest group called the Wave Performance Task Force didn't make his life too pleasant. (laughs) So, (laughs) they staged a protest in front of the Adia Art Foundation's retrospective on Carl Andre in 2014, where the demonstrators dropped animal blood and guts in front of the establishment wearing transparent tracksuits with I wish Ana Mendieta was still alive written on them. They did it again in March 2015 to protest the retrospective of Carl Andre at another gallery where the protests cried loudly in the main gallery, made silhouettes in the snow on museum grounds, staining it with paprika, sprinkles, and fake blood. And again, in April 2017, protests at yet another Andre retrospective handed out cards saying, Carl Andre is at Mocha Geffen. Donde esta
1: Ana Mendieta? I am glad that this is going to follow him and haunt him for the rest of his life. It's not enough. No. It's not enough at all, so... Oh, here, I just
2: found that note. Yes, he has fresh, He had fresh scratches on his nose and forearm. And also his stories weren't matching. I guess when he gave his story to the police, it was different from the story that he had given on the 911 call. But the other thing that I also forgot to mention was that he was not tried in front of a jury. He was just tried in front of one judge.
1: Right, which is what I figured from what you said. Yeah. But, um... Uh... Well, that's unsatisfying.
2: <laughs> I know it's unsatisfying, but it is in a way because there's this like, she was still fairly young when she passed away and she was this very, very radical, very out there feminist to the point where I feel like that's like the feminism that like your parents warned you about when you were younger, like the crazy bra oh, for burning sure. type. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she made such this lasting impact specifically on like the Cuban community and she has such a, a following of people that just like genuinely really love her that like so many years after her death, like 30 some years after her death, we can still be protesting her husband's work. I mean, to me, like the legacy sometimes that people have is almost as important as the lives that they lived, because while her artwork was so impactful and jarring and important at the time. Her artwork is almost, I feel like, living even longer because of what the feminist community has made her into.
1: Totally. You know what I mean? Because as
2: much as she was like this feminist headstrong artist, I don't think during her life she had that community behind her. And that's something that she got
1: posthumously that I think has made her art. They always say that artists are, you know, don't get the recognition they deserve in their life. Well, they don't because that's they're always, ahead that's
0: of their. Th- always the thing because
2: artists are always ahead of their time. they they see things I feel like that other people just don't see. And she was able to also display things in ways that nobody did in the seventies. You know what I mean? It was so jarring and out there. So the fact that she was able to do some, like, something like that has created this wonderful legacy and inspiration for so many feminists out there to defend yourself and stand up for yourself. And also, you know, the story is so sad when so many of her pieces, you know, displayed these images of really graphic domestic violence where she herself ended up in such a terrible relationship and that that's how her life would end is really...
1: Art imitating life or vice versa. It's
2: really, really tragic. It's so tragic. And I loved learning about her. I'm very excited for this documentary. I'm sure it's going to take forever now that we're in the pandemic, but... I'll let you know when I hear about it. (laughs) Yeah, for
1: sure. Definitely do.
2: Yeah. Oh, well, we really hope that you all enjoyed another installment of Forgotten Feminist Favorites, but in particular, our Celebration for Hispanic Heritage Month. We hope you all appreciated it. If there's anything that you would like to write us about, go ahead and email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or direct message us at angryneighborhoodfeminist on Instagram. You can also follow us on Twitter at YAMF Podcast. Y-A-N-F Podcast. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can rate and review us on the business page and chat with your fellow listeners on the group page. They're all super nice, I promise. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That is the number one way to help us and to help other people find our show and we appreciate it so much. And to thank you, you will be featured on Reviews Day Tuesday on our Instagram Last but simply not least, if you haven't already, go ahead and check out the Radio Public app. It is a free way for you to listen to us, and it helps just a teeny tiny bit. All right. With all of that being said, we encourage you to To rage
1: on.
0: Bye. Hey, it's Mae Whitman, and I play Frankie in the new
2: Realm podcast, The Sisters. The Sisters is about a museum curator of medical oddities who investigates the origins of a mutated skeleton with two layers of bones.
0: Seven ribs are completely fused. And you have no idea where this came from? No, she was sent here anonymously. Mm -mm, Not she. They, maybe? Wait. I've never seen anything like this.